we have a great deal of text in some manners to go through tonight because we're covering one of the most abused areas in all of Scripture. I love these kind of things, to be honest. Um, Those areas where we just assume we know things because of the culture that we're in. These places where, like, oh yeah, I know this is how our church has done it, that kind of thing. And certainly this will be one of those areas. And so I feel like part of what we'll have to fight here will be kind of a familiar ignorance to Scripture. And it's been a really great day for it. Um, I had the privilege, This sometimes these kind of things take a bit of time. They took about five hours today, where we kind of spent the day in rev- or the year in review, spent some time just thumbing through about 1,200 pictures of what the Lord has done in 2014. And it has been astounding. I mean, you, you, know, you can't help but get reminiscent. You can't help but get sentimental. At least I can't. Maybe you can. I'm not that type. But uh, just how thankful the Lord has made me again for what He's doing. And so many of your faces seeing you um, coming in and out of water with me in Brighton or just watching you come to know Jesus for the first time. or It's just really, really special. I mean, think about where you were heading into last Christmas and how different it is from this year. Really, uh, it's a revolution in in many beautiful ways. So, so listen, this year we do have um, flyers, and I know Naomi will let you know about that. She'll probably tackle you and give you some on the way out um, because they're not to be wasted. But we do have a bunch of invitations to this year's sort of carol service slash praise service slash you're going to get the gospel whether you like it or not service. So uh, please, if you'd like to grab some or if you don't, just grab a couple, but if you'd like to grab some, grab a lot. Uh, Naomi will give those to you in the back upon your exit today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. We are in the book of Second Corinthians tonight. And I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. <clears throat> so, Second Corinthians. I know that um, one of the things we're, of course, we're praying for is where God would lead us as far as buildings. This is a very lovely building and a very old building. But I, I don't think they probably had a lot of evening meetings uh, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is that this is all artificial light. And even with all the artificial light, it's still very dark in here. Uh, we could be very thankful for backlighting for those of you who have iPhones and iPads and galaxies and all of the other things that will help you see it. But uh, And certainly for me, that becomes crucial with my eyesight. But be in prayer and just that the Lord will have us where, we wants to, where He wants us to. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says this. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you, but I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold with the confidence of by which I intend to be bold against some. Who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every 
high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, more than words, more than being impressed with some form of knowledge, more than our being entertained, our brains tickled, tonight You have a therapy You've ordained. And this therapy includes instruction. And instruction so that we out now being pulled out of our ignorance, would understand with biblical clarity the gravity of this battle, the victory in this battle, the ground this battle is being fought over. And that, Lord, we would today walk out of here changed people. That we'll have encountered You, not just it, but You. So, Lord, as You teach. Get me out of your way. Immerse me with your Holy Spirit so that that everyone here would see you. Fill me to overflowing so that you would be seen and that I would spill you all over everyone. Speak fluent every one of us individually, regardless of what our native tongue is. Speak to our heart of hearts and our minds tonight and bring us to that place where choice, proper choice is made. So I commit myself to you every second of this time. Let it not be a moment more or less, but as you desire in gravity and breath and width and depth, do as you, as you desire. I surrender myself to you and now pray, Lord, you do your work. Save, equip, transform, encourage, strengthen, clarify. Do all that you intend through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Very few times will you find me saying this with as much vehemence, though I, you, by now you could probably quote it as verbatim. Don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let this beautiful book that you hold in your hands be that for which you test all information that you receive. Now, you might say, well, it's a really big book. And I might say, there's a lot of information to test. And it would be nice to have a thorough, exhaustive book for that purpose. Now, how many of you were raised in one manner or another? Now, I'm not saying you were raised a Christian. That's very different. But how many of you were raised within the culture of a church setting? Would you raise your hand? I just want to see. Okay. Thank you very much. One of the dangers of that, and there are certainly great things within that, is that we tend to think that our culture must be biblical simply because, well, that's what we've always done. And then come these sort of waves of things, these sort of, well, what the next movement, the next thing. And certainly the area of spiritual warfare becomes one of them. In the 80s, it was the 
left, or not the left behind, it was the Piercing the Darkness books. Some of you remember those books. Some of you were being born in the 80s. I'm aware of that. But they were kind of the idea that somehow in all of this, angels were fighting over your shoulder, but you couldn't see them. And if you could just root for the right angels, somehow in all of that, you would win. And you got on one side of it this ignorance that there must not be any form of spiritual warfare going on. Everything is sort of here in the natural. And on the other side, it gets so oblique and so non-definitive that it's, it gets to this place where it's sort of like you've got these guys that are like, we're going to go demon hunting. And I mean, it just it gets to this place where even unbelievers know that it can't possibly be in Scripture. If, if it is, that the Bible's an infinitely daft novel at best. And like a lot of these areas, we get into Scripture like this, and it's going to be challenging, I think, in regards to what you may know, especially those of you who are raised in a culture where those kind of words were common. So again, let me say, please don't just believe me. Search the Scriptures, but prove me right or wrong by them. This is where I want to start on this. Our context for 2 Corinthians 10, really, in the emphasis of that, is about these people who are evaluating Paul by surface evaluations. Notice it says, by the way, in the first two verses, that Paul, in a simple sense, and maybe perhaps you're familiar with this kind of dynamic, that in present, he's kind of a meek and mild character, but once he's away, he turns into a lion. You ever have those kind of people where, and maybe that is you, where, you know, when you're away, you're like, man, if I were there, I would say, and I would do, and I would, and then you get there and you just clam up. When, to be honest, what could be more fitting in the season we're in than such a concept? Because probably for most of us, if that ever is a prominent dynamic, it's probably around a time when you're around family and old friends. And here we are now at the cusp of Christmas And it may actually snow. The temperatures are dropping. You could tell the people who are smiling, they're from places like Norway or Finland or whatever. And in all of that, some people, Christmas actually comes with dread. It comes with the dread of people that you know you can't avoid. They're family members or members of your old block. And you know you're probably going to face them. And you're fearful because though you've changed, there's that fear inside of you that if you're going to be around them, you might recede back to the person you used to be. And you didn't like that person very much at all. And you know that in those situations, you get to this place where you feel real sheepish, even if you felt really strong outside of the area, once removed. Well, I want you to know you're in good company. Paul felt the same way. Paul felt that same way in a lot of ways in regards to the people here in Corinth. It tells us here that his natural propensity was to be kind of mild or mild, not mild, maybe that too, but mild and timid amongst people. But then when he's away from them, his letters are really pretty heavy. As a matter of fact, what Paul would say about the Corinthians is that the way that they kind of describe Paul, and Paul's aware of it, is that his letters are weighty, but he's really unimpressive. His speech contemptible and his appearance really disrespectful when it comes to or really nothing of any great nobility in person. In other words, Paul would be the guy, kind of guy, read the book, but don't see him live. 
That's kind of the idea here. But what Paul is saying in the first two verses is, I just I beg you. And notice he uses the word plead in the first verse and the word beg in the second. He is begging them, please don't make me have to be tight, get tight with you guys and turn into a line in front of you. Now, there are certainly people, and he tells us in verse 2, in which he intends to be bold against some, that he already has this confrontation in mind. And some of you, maybe you know what this is like when there's going to be a confrontation. And I'm not even talking about something where you know it's going to be yelling and screaming, and, but just even an altercation where you're just going to have to approach your position on someone. Your heart starts to race even thinking about that encounter. Well, that's kind of where Paul is at here. And his whole point of it is really simple. According to verse 2, it tells us that I beg you that, don't, that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence in which I tend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. This word think for what's worth, logitomai, the idea of it, to, to be honest, is to, be, to take an inventory, to estimate. And the idea is that, that there are some people, and it's always going to be this way, no matter where you're at, some people are just going to estimate you by appearance. Now, to some degree, everyone will mate, they mate to some degree, but some people, it's as far as they'll ever go. They're going to kind of take a look at you, and they're going to say, you're black, you're white, you're tall, you're thin, you look kind of smart, you look kind of dumb, you dress kind of shabby, you dress kind of smart, or whatever. And they're going to kind of make most of them, not all of their conclusions, basically without ever really talking to you much. Now, be careful, because some people, you can watch this happen in the area of romance all the time. The guy sat in church, and he was cute, and he was kind of well-built, and whatever. And the gal's like, he must be an amazing Christian. Because he's amazing to look at. And they've made all kinds of evaluations. And it's like the, 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 the idea of their walk with Christ, and their commitment, and their nobility, and their, their faithfulness, and all of that, is so secondary that you kind of have to make excuses by the time you actually have gotten to that point in the relationship. So be careful, because we can do the same thing. But here, Paul knows that there are a group of people in Corinth and they're evaluating Paul's ministry by the surface. And this is what it looks like from the surface. Paul was unimpressive to look at. Paul's speech was not a really amazing thing. And more than likely, probably because he had gotten something like malaria or some kind of really dreadful disease that really kind of made him a little bit, well, not as gifted in the area of communication like he would have been before. We know that because when Paul speaks to the Galatians, he says, which, by the way, is in route Paul says, you know that it was out of infirmity that I visited you guys in the first place. Paul was so sick, and apparently something that had to do with his eyes, that he had to make a pit stop in in Galatia, which is a whole region in the center of Turkey. So get the idea, by this point, Paul's kind of a mess physically. And certainly, he's been beat up so many times that that alone's going to mess with you. You ever see a guy and you just know one of the first things you notice is that guy's been punched in the nose a few times? Just yesterday at the study in Covent Garden, just as we were closing up, a guy comes stumbling in. He's clearly pickled. He's, you know, it's like a, if you rinsed him out, you probably could have had a whole bottle of vodka out of it. But his nose looked like something from Tate Modern. And I'm not trying to be mean. 
What's clear is, and when he said he used to box, my first thought is he used to lose. Because, I mean, his, he was just really, really mangled. And you just kind of see that upon him. Well, imagine if that was the, the, the guy shows up and you hear, there's this guy and he's writing scripture and he shows up and his face kind of looks like a Picasso. You know, and he's, he's kind of drooling out of the side of his mouth now. And he's kind of limping in. You know, and he's obviously he doesn't have a lot of money. He's checking over his shoulder because people have chased him out of the last four towns. And there are some people that look and go, you really think this is what a man of God supposed to look like? And Paul's like, okay, now, oh no, you didn't. And now Paul's like, I'm going to go, don't worry, when I get there, we're going to go toe to toe. Don't worry about that. But please don't get caught up in that yourselves. He goes, here's the crazy part. These people who are so surface have no concept of where the real battle's being fought. Now please hear me. In the world we live in, there is this paradigm where success somehow works out to be comfort. And you know that's kind of the pursuit, ultimately. If we can make enough money and buy the right house and get the right job so that we can retire at the right age, we can kind of settle in and we're comfortable. We're comfortable. We know the shape of our bed. We can close the door. Or we can turn off the lights and we can walk to it without bumping into anything. We kind of know we can, if you, you know, we know which lines to take to get there and how long it's going to take. And I mean, we're just comfortable. Everything falls into its routine. And comfort becomes the paradigm. Well, the problem is, when that becomes the thing which we tether all of our decisions to, God's really going to muck with you. Because he's not about, he's not promised that your life was to be comfortable, but rather, he's promised to be comfort in your life. The comfort of your life. And what happens is, whether you like it or not, the storms are going to come. Whether you like it or not, things are going to be very far out of schedule. Sooner or later, that train's going to break down and the thing's not going to happen. And sooner or later, someone might break in your house. Those kind of things happen. The question is, what comfort do you find in a moment like that? And these particular people were saying that if you were really, and it's a traditional Jewish mindset, that if you were really tight with God, you'd never be sick, you'd never be poor, and you'd never have trials. And you could go to churches like that today. You're aware of that. Where the idea of it is, and of course it always seems to come with a warble and with a, with a handshaking and somebody like, even when they're from Britain, I've learned, they can still learn how to talk like somebody from Kentucky. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, hey, it's nice to meet you. And they're like, oh, God wants. And I'm like, how in the world did you turn into Jimmy Swaggart all of a sudden? And you realize, and he's like, and he wants you rich, and he wants you healthy, and he wants you, but if that's the case, then Paul has failed their test. Because he wasn't rich, and he, was, well, he wasn't rich by, world's, by worldly measures. He wasn't healthy by worldly measures, but the man was on fuego for Christ, and he was richer than the richest man on earth because he had the things of Christ which couldn't be stolen. And he was healthier than anyone ever could be that, that, could, that, was, you know, that seemed to be vibrant and in the, th- the prime of their life because he was actually thriving in Christ. He's like, please don't get caught up into that doctrine. Because they don't even realize the real battle has nothing to do with the surface. And they're like, well, if you really want to win the battle, this is the clothes you need to wear. These are the songs you're going to need to sing. This is the way you're going to need to look. And, and it's all surface. And man, if your experience with Christianity, notice I didn't say Christ, but if your experience with Christianity is about as thick as a, you know, as a crisp well, then I don't blame you for thinking it's a joke. Because if all you've seen is just another politic that seems just as surface, 
just as judgmental from the surface, but not any depth. And people will say, hi, how are you doing? But don't stop to wait for an answer. And it looks no different in, in, in church than anywhere else. Well, then I get it. I get why you would think it's just like everything else. But I invite you to go find Christ, not the politic of people. And when I got into this book, my whole world changed. I'll be honest. My world changed because I realized that what I was seeing that seemed really shallow and surface around me had nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It demanded sacrifice. It demanded surrender. And it demanded things that I didn't see around me. But then I was stuck in a crisis because I realized I was part of the same machine. And now am I going to go and just put myself into the cookie cutter thing here and not respect myself? Or was I going to be a part of the difference? And that's my challenge to you tonight. If you in any way make claim to Christ, are you, and you, and you see these things, these hypocritical, thin, lever, you know, thin layered surface things, are we going to get beyond all of that and be different? Because that's what he's telling us this weapon, this battle is here. Now, all of this to say, that's our context for what we're looking at here. Because he says, now, with all of this, they have no concept of the real battle, because the real battle has nothing to do with, with whether you wear, you know, the suit, or whether you wear a button-up shirt, or where you wear a t-shirt to church. Hey, if you want to dress up to honor God, be my guest. But it's not about that. That's not the core of everything here. We're to be clothed with Christ, with humility, with love. So verse 3, he starts this, and I want us to read it carefully. For though we walk in the flesh, sarks, it's it's, it's a common word, that we do not war according to it. The word war, and perhaps you're familiar with the word, and then the idea of the word is like strategies. It's actually more than just fighting, but it's actually an entire military campaign. You're looking at the map, and as you're looking at the map, you've kind of got your guys, and you've got, they've got their guys, and you're kind of positioning things. There is, there is intellect being put into this. There is forethought. There is a challenge. It isn't just that you were walking and somebody jumped you when you found yourself in a fight. That's an entirely different word altogether. This is a word that this is an organized battle that took forethought and strategy on both sides. It's where we get the word strategy from. So when he says, though we walk from a surface or from a fleshly surface, the battle, this, this stratagem that is taking place where two sides collide, that is not on the surface. And therefore, fighting it on the surface is stupid. Because it's not where it's, being taking, it's, not where it's taking place. No, I get that. Do you get that? And now, there are all kinds of places we could bounce off of too that could be really untethered to the text. But I want you to take a look at the next verse. For, what he means because, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The sarkikos. Now, tethered to this word sarks, but sarkikos means according to the flesh. And all of a sudden I start to go, wait a minute. Before we get into the idea of the whole text of it, of what we do, the comparison of that to mighty in God, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but there's another word for physical, which isn't the word that's being used here, or tangible, which is another word that could be used here. But the word, the idea of according to the flesh, listen to the difference, and please, if you will, forgive me, but this is so important to me. 
is that the stratagem, not just the hand-to-hand combat, but the stratagem is not according to the flesh. And I go, oh, wait a minute, that's entirely different. We get the idea that, well, if I could just see the spiritual world, the heavenlies, where these battles seem to be taking place, and then I could get in there with whatever weapon I have to fight in whatever way I can. But what he's saying is even the strategy to win this battle is going to be nothing like any strategy you've seen in any battle on earth. That's the idea here. And we get the idea of a strategy on earth. The strategy on earth is, I would imagine, get bigger, bu- bigger guns, bigger guns, hopefully not, but get bigger guns, strike first, make sure that you get them when they're not looking. I mean, the idea of it, of course, is overcoming the enemy. You want to make sure you've got a solid army. And, of course, there are certain things that, are, that come with that kind of strategy. He goes, but there's an entirely different strategy because this is an entirely different war. This is not a war of the surface. This is a war in depth. Because this is a war in depth, we have to go beyond that to see what God says. Does that make sense? Because the danger is, is that there are some people in the world that don't see it that way. And so what happens is it's sort of like, well, well, this is how the physical world is fought. So this is how we have to fight just like that. Now let's drag that mindset into the spiritual battle. And now we're going to go stomp demons. And we're going to go and take on those. And it's just the same stratagem, but we're now trying to put it in, in a different place. And he's going, that's not the way it is. The rules of engagement in the world are going to be very different from the rules of engagement in a spiritual world. So we need to be aware of the fact that even from the very beginning of this, he says that the weapons of our warfare, they can't be carnal. They can't be from this surface. They can't be according to this fleshly mindset. Because it isn't about causing fleshly battle. This is about a permanent battle that is permanently won. And like any battle, though, there is something to take after. I mean, think about it. Three ba- if you th- when I start to think about battles, I put it on three different categories. There's the battle of defending your ground. There is the battle of retrieving the taken. And then there is the battle of conquering new ground. Does that make sense? All of which, by the way, Scripture will make clear. When we get to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll take a look at that in just a moment. Clearly the battle is keeping your ground. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. And he tells us about being fully armored and weaponed. So there is the issue of holding your ground. There is the issue of the reconnaissance, like pulling those who even, by the way, hating even the clothes that are stained by that sin as if they're escape, narrowly escaping the fire. There are those times when we are on reconnaissance. But what's amazing to me is that the church in mass can really be all about defending and then it has no offense. It's not going out after, it's, after the ones who have been pulled down and it's certainly not going out to take new ground. So the churches get surrendered to become theaters and flats and pubs and such. Because to be honest, and this is what the Lord has been showing me lately, they were that before that. In a desire to engage the world to make it its friend instead of to change the world, it was a, it was a pub or a theater or a place where people slept. Before that, it just, at least in the sight of God, it just didn't necessarily hang the shingle. And there are places you can go to in Covenant Garden where you can go and, and get drunk with the, with the pastor and then maybe get a prayer with them. It's like they call it the pub and prayer. There are places where the entire thing is a really great show and you go and you can be very entertained. And there are certainly places you could go and get a great nap. And God's like, those things have been happening for quite a while, well before they ever really got converted as you saw it on the surface. 
They've been that way underneath for quite a while. I'm like, God, well, don't let us be that. The good news is, is that though the weapons of our warfare and the, the, the weaponry of our stratagem and engagement is not going to be surface or carnal, it is going to be powerful, completely capable, dunatis. And, but notice, by the way, there is a, a hinge on that. Verse 4, it says, but mighty in God. And that's going to be, by the way, the theme of all of this. The imperative on this is it's not mighty in your hand. It's not mighty when we're all together and singing a song. It's mighty in God because that's really where the battle's going to be fought here. So let me kind of give some background. And again, I'm just trying to pull out, pull out some scripture to kind of help us with this. Now, know that you know that we're only covering six verses in our original text. The first thing is, and I don't like to give this guy a lot of press, but it's important to kind of note his MO. And that is there are two specific places that really focus a bit on the enemy. Those two places, and they'll be easy to remember because one of them is just half the other. One is Isaiah 14 and the other is Ezekiel 28. So 28, double 14. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, this is what it says. How you have fallen... From heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregations on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you see what his problem was? He had serious eye trouble. I will ascend, I will exalt, I will also sit, I will ascend, and I will be like the Most High. Should it surprise us that that's exactly the tactic he used with Eve when that was exactly the tactic it was in his own heart? I'll be just like God. Well, it didn't work out for him. You can imagine him trying it out on Eve. You know, if you eat of this, you'll be just like God. The primary motivation in this person, this character, is one that they have to be first. There's no submission. There's no surrender. It is them first. And anybody in their way is to be stepped on. In Ezekiel 28, and of course we develop a lot of this, but I'm just going with simple clarity. In verse 13, it tells us that he was actually quite the thing prior You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of timbrels and pipes. Timbrels, by the way, like tambourines, um, they're sort of an instrument that sort of makes a a common time. They were prepared for you on the day you were created. Stop. Did you notice those last three words? Of verse 13. You were created. Never forget that. He's just a created being. Great to look at. Of course, it always seems to be a joke among some pastors. They're like, be careful. It seemed like the devil was God's worship leader. But uh, we can't say that from here. But it does seem like he was great to look at. He was full of stones and he had some kind of musical instruments somehow related to him or attached. Verse 14 says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stone. You were perfect in all your ways from the day. And notice again, you were created till iniquity was found in you. 
by the abundance of your trading or compromise, you have come filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now, please understand here. Somewhere down the line, he looked in the mirror, if you will, and said, Wow, aren't they lucky to have me? And that becomes the core of his heart. And then this particular individual now, like a roaring lion, is seeking who he may devour. What do you think his tactics are with you? I'd say they're the same. Put you first. It was exactly the tactics he used in the Garden of Eden. And it seems to have worked then. And it seems to have worked ever since. If he could just get you thinking about you. Oh, that's so effective. So understand, this particular individual was not granted co-leadership or co-regency with God. He was a created being as where God is infinite. God was his creator and he thought that he should be worthy of taking that same level of adoration, respect and honor that God himself, his own creator, was due. God says, That's, that doesn't play here. This, this place isn't big enough for both of us. I want to take us for a moment to where this battle takes place. We're just kind of putting the things and we'll put them all together in the end. In the book of Ephesians, and flip there if you would, if you could, if you are in Second Corinthians, go to the right, it'll be Galatians and then Ephesians. And I want you to go to chapter 1. What we're going to read by the time we get to chapter 6 is that the battle takes place in what we call here the heavenly places. I'd like you to know, though, what we know about that place, this heavenly places. This is what it says in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and notice in Christ. If the battle's to take place, one thing, the first thing I need to know about the heavenly places before I even got to the battle, that'll be in six, is that I am not lacking any spiritual blessing there. Did you notice that? And by the way, and how else can you read that but the way it is? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let's just say for the moment, let's just make it easy. Let's say that the battle really is taking place in Birmingham. And that's where the spiritual battle is. And then God were to say, Mary, I just want you to know, when you get to Birmingham, you have every spiritual blessing you need. You have, there isn't a spiritual blessing you don't have in Birmingham. You with me so far? Chapter 2. In, in, oh, by the way, let me just say this. In chapter 1, verse 20, when he talks about God demonstrating his power through Jesus, it tells us this. He worked that power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, that's the Father, of course, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age that is to come. And he put all things under his feet, 
and gave him to be head over, well, all things to the church. So, in the heavenly places, God the Father is enthroned. And as God the Father is enthroned, when Jesus was raised from the dead, where is Jesus? Well, according to these verses, this should be easy. Take a look at it. Where is he? At the Father's right hand. And did you notice it says, above every principality, power, might, dominion, and any name that is named, in this age and also in the age to come. So this is what I know already about the spiritual, the heavenly places. In this heavenly place, I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. Again, Birmingham, Mary has everything that she needs there, but also that the one whom she serves, this Jesus, her Savior, is in command and he is over every other thing in Birmingham. Or in this case, even better yet, the spiritual places. Does that make sense? Third thing then, look at chapter, chapter 2. In chapter 2, he tells us that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, having accepted the gift of Jesus, he, we, he forgave us, raised us up, and then it tells us in verse 6, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now look at that carefully. That should be a simple verse, right? Can you see that verse? So get this. The Father on the throne above everything. Jesus at the Father's right hand. Above all of the principalities, powers, might, and dominion. He's above all of that in the heavenly places. Are you with me so far? Now where are you at? According to that verse. In Him. Not on Him, not beside Him, but in Him. Did you get that? So if you're in Him, and He's above every principality, power, might, and dominion, where are you at in regards to all principalities, powers, might, and dominion? You're above them. Do you get that? That's the most amazing part about this. But the thing that is never missing is the in Christ part. It doesn't say you, God raised you up and put you above all those things. It says he raised you up and put you in Christ. You coincidentally happen to be above all that stuff because you are in Christ. Not because he just went, oh, I'm going to raise you up and give you this power and authority and you could just tell demons. And I have friends that are like this. They're like, you know what? I woke up this morning and I just told, I just told Satan, go climb that mountain six times and he had to follow me because I'm above him. Could you imagine Satan's like, oh, now I have to go climb that mountain six times. I think he's probably just really happy you're giving him attention. The Lord would just be rather happy. I, I, wouldn't you think that the Lord would just be rather happy you spending time with him? If there was somebody trying to destroy the, my relationship with my wife, and all I did was talk bad about her to my wife. Would that please her more than me just spending time with my wife and enjoying her? How much more so with our Lord? Well, there's more. A couple more, by the way. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, look at it with me, verse 8. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this is Paul speaking because of the, his, his history, Grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery, the mystery that God wants everyone saved, which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may be made known by the church to the principalities, powers in the heavenly places. So if we play this thing out, now again, I'm just showing you the verses. I'm not skipping any. I'm showing you all the verses that pertain to this. 
You are part of that church. Where are you at in this scene? It's the heavenly places. Where are you at? This should be an easy question. You're in Christ. And where is Christ? The right hand of the Father. Where is he in relationships with the principalities and powers? He's above them. And you're seated in him. And the church's responsibility is to declare that he wants you saved too. He wants them saved too. That he saves. Now to Paul and to the group that he was with at that time, it was revolutionary that God would save anyone but Jewish people. But to declare to the entire universe, God saves. He saves Africans. He saves Chinese. He saves Greeks, even Greeks. He saves even Americans. He'll save anyone if they call out to him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that make sense? Finally, then, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For though we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, mights, dominions, and rules of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What the heck? But I'm already above those things. So how could I possibly wrestle them if they're already below me? Let me challenge you with this. That what we're going to see throughout this, and we'll see as we bring this to a close shortly, is that the battle will be to simply get you to try to step out of Christ. That's the battle. As long as I'm deeply entrenched and I'm in Christ where I belong. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, sort of theologically in the sense that I know that no matter how stupid I'm going to be, I'm going to be in Christ because he saved me. But I'm talking about walking in Christ, in the love of Christ, under the dominion of Christ, of him as my Lord, not just as my Savior, but under his lordship. That's an entirely different thing. And I get this. There are certain times where there you are with somebody and you're like, imagine Allie. And Allie befriends, you know, somebody and they're like six foot ten or like seven feet tall. And they're like, you know, 25 stone and it's all muscle. And, and Allie kind of looks like his kneecap in comparison. <laughs> you know, I mean, his shin is bigger than Allie. And the two of them are walking and this man's like, I've committed Allie to protecting you at any moment. Stay with me. Held onto my hand, you're going to be safe. And all of a sudden, someone comes up and goes, Hey, you think you're so tough with this big guy? Why don't you just let go and come on, fight me yourself? Pride would say, All right, Holmes, let's take this thing on. But wisdom would say, That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why in the world would I want to do that? I'll tell you why you'd want to do that. What if your bodyguard isn't giving you what you want? Hey, you know, you've been waiting a long time for this thing or this break or this thing. And you think this is going to complete you. But, oh, man, and he's not giving it to you. You're going to have to let go of that hand to get it. Now, here's the most amazing thing. That though I can let go of God's hand, he's not going to let go of me. Because actually, his hand marked the universe. It says from its expanse. So from here to here, God went, yeah, that'll be the universe. And then I'm placed there. And Jesus says, no one is able to pull him out of my hand. I get that. So from a perspective of where I'm at in Christ, he's not going to let me go. The question is, am I going to let him go in regards to my life? 
in regards to the lifestyle I live, because the enemy goes, oh, you know, hey, this is what I have. You know, this is what God has for you. But there's so much more out there. And he starts to sing Disney like, I can show you the world. And you're like, oh, glistening and gleaming. Right. But you know that that's nothing because you have joy. And he's like, but I have happiness. You're like, happiness is temporary. Joy is permanent. Why would I want to trade this in? Because it's shiny and new and sparkling and glistening. And that becomes your battle. See, for me to stay here and hold on to Christ's hand, I have to always be number two. I can never be number one. I would say, you know what? You're right. It's you. It's you. You're the Lord. You are the Lord. And then he goes, yeah, but aren't you tired of that? Aren't you tired of taking commands all the time? Aren't you tired of where he's placed you? Aren't you tired of the fact that you could be so much more with this world? But in the sight of eternity, it's so lame. And that becomes the challenge, beloved. Because this world has a really good PR machine working on it right now. And it tells us that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. But here's the most amazing thing about the battle, so that you know that I'm not not just making this up. I'm going to throw out a bunch of verses really quick. Because <clears throat> I want to be respective of our time. Exodus 14, 14, Moses speaking to the nation of Israel, it says, The Lord will fight for you. Hold your peace. Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all that He's done already to Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, For the Lord your God is with you who brought you out. Don't be afraid of the people. He's with you. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, For the Lord your God, it is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, The Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He'll be with you. Why does He go before you? Because He's the fighter. He's the one who leads us in this battle. Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. First Samuel, perhaps you're familiar with the text. Chapter 17, verse 47, the battle tells us, this is the assembly shall know that the Lord is not saved with sword and spear. Does that sound familiar? Those are weapons that are carnal. For the battle is the Lord's. Second Chronicles 20, verse 15, as Jehoshaphat is crying out because being surrounded by the Mount Seir and the Syrians, and it says then, Listen, all you of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid or dismayed because of the great multitude. The battle's not yours. It's God's. How many times does he have to tell us that? The battle's not yours. It's his. The battle's not yours. It's his. The battle's not yours. It's his. But I already know how to fight this one. And he says, and you know how to lose. But the battle's not yours. It's his. And here's the best part. He is the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. Who better to choose? It's all right, God. Have you ever done this to the Lord? It's all right, God. I've got this one handled. God's like, okay, I'll wait here. Just waiting. And the longer it takes, the, you know, the more we have to eat crow to get there. I just love the fact that the Lord is willing. Now look at what happens if somebody goes nuts on you? They just turn crazy. Or what happens if 
you know, just something goes so awry. It isn't like the Lord may not tell you there's something I want you to do in it. It isn't like I'm, I'm just going to sit here. I owe some bills. I'm not going to work. It's the battles of the Lord. Well, the Lord may say the battle is yours. And now that I'm leading you in the battle, I'm going to lead you to a job. But the battle's still his. And what I've learned is as long as I'm in Christ, I'm above it. Even though it happens. And the best example I can give you was Jesus with Peter. When the men are out on the boat, this isn't the first time. The difference is Jesus isn't in the boat like, it was, like he was the last time. And the storm rises. The water is now filling the boat. And this is a pretty rough situation. And the guys are pretty convinced they're going to die. And they see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to step out of this boat. And Jesus says, come. It's the only word he needs to say. And Peter gets up and he starts to walk. Now, of course, the, my, one of my favorite things about it is how many people that love you, that even may be Christian but very compromising, will say, be careful, don't go overboard. And I wonder how many of the other disciples told Peter, whatever you do, don't go overboard. And Peter was going overboard. Here's the point. When Peter walked on that water, was the storm still happening? Yes. Was the wind still blowing? Sure, because after a moment, he's going to take his eyes and put it on that instead. When Peter stepped out of that boat to follow Jesus, it didn't stop the storm. It just put it underneath his feet. That's the point. Staring at the storm will never keep you over it. Keeping your eyes on Christ, as Isaiah tells us, that he promises to keep in perfect peace those whose minds, whose minds are stayed on him. Well, the offensive, Jesus had already told us in Matthew 16, if you remember, he told us that when he will build his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail. Does that sound like defense at that point? I'm not in hell. How about you? It sounds like it better be one of the other two. Reconnaissance, or I'm going to go start taking some ground. God intended, and listen, this may be hard to swallow, especially in a place where we're busy trying not to offend anyone. Jesus intended and invented the church to be offensive. He created it to be offensive. Not inherently offensive by our rudeness, but by the fact that we're not going to give ground to lies. And that we're going to reach out to people and see them loved in Christ. That's the point. So when we look at this weapons of our warfare in Ephesians 6, where everything in our armory is about, you know, whether it's the breastplate of righteousness or, or the helmet of salvation or the shield of faith or girding our, our loins and the truth or shotting our feet in the gospel, the preparation of the gospel of peace, and even the sword's a small one. I'd take it with me, but I'd be arrested taking it on a train to get here to show you. But it's a very small one. It's only a six-inch sword. It's a mechanic. And the whole point of it is it's a defensive weapon. Every bit of the things that are, giving us, that are given to us in Ephesians 6 are defensive weapons. As a matter of fact, having been to Ephesus, one of the greatest things is I actually have photographs of wall uh, carvings in Ephesus of, a man in, of men in armor. And you'll see giant shield, little sword. Because we advance in our faith. But the, the sword is for specific sticking because the sword is still truth and it's still a very dangerous weapon. It's not a, the broad sword where you just wave it indiscriminately and hope it hits something. 
It isn't like you're in trouble and you just start saying, Jesus wept, Jesus wept, Jesus wept, because you knew it was a verse and just assumed that things are going to be better. You want to make sure that you're doing precise carving. That's what Jesus did when he was being tempted. Well, having said all of this, and this is just kind of laying the, the ground, now let's get to our text and let's clean this thing up. The weapons of our warfare. They're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for, and then he starts giving us these things. The enemy now, he's, his challenge, of course, he's already wanted to be in preeminent, preeminence, but he's not getting it because he's created and the creator is who he's standing against. That becomes the problem. So I'm going to use a couple people. Daniel Nathaniel. Come on up for a second. I want you to take a look at this as we bring this around. <clears throat> it tells us that there are a few stages here. Notice what the first of them is. So the two of them are going to want to now notice this is offensive. This is not them defending. They have a city to take. They have something to take. And just like if you know anything about chess that was invented, by the way, with the idea of deciphering who could be a general who was smart enough to know how to handle all of his planks, that was invented to try to sort of fish that out. Once you take the king, the game's over. You're aware of that, right? I mean, it's weird because if you've ever played chess, I always thought, man, the queen, she gets to go anywhere. She's like, boom, 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 all over. The king's like, one step, one step. And then the more that you see some history on some of these guys, you kind of see why that might be the case. But one thing's for sure, once you take the king, the game's over. Well, there's a king in this, too. Something to take at the end of this. Something that is what we want to take captive at the end of this, where... That's what this whole battle is all about. Does that make sense? Well, here's the first thing. So here they are, the two of them. Now, they have already conferred. They're ready. They want to take that city and they want to get that king. Because once they do, they're going to win this battle. I remind you, this is a spiritual battle we're talking here. Does that make sense? In the spiritual, by the way, in the heavenly places. And what do we know about that? Well, I also know that I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing there. I know that Jesus is sitting large and in charge and I'm seated in Christ there. And the battle's his. That's what I know so far, right? So, with that in mind, here they are. They have to approach. Now, notice what the first thing says. So, you guys are coming this way. And it tells us the first thing, notice, is for... What is it mighty in Christ for? What does it tell us here? A mighty in God for? What's the first thing in our text? Pulling down strongholds. Now, understand, a stronghold, according to Scripture, is always the place where you feel is the safest. It is the place that is the most protected, and it is the place that usually is the tower that's either in the center, in the middle, or it's the tower in the front that's going to keep you at a distance. Does that make sense? Now, listen, for instance, only used once in the New Testament here. It's only used once in the Torah, Numbers 13, 19, when the nation Israel spies out the land of Canaan, and they say, they have strong towers. They have giant strong towers. They're impenetrable, because I can't even get near that city. So something's going to want to keep you away. So here it is. So they're going to come, and here I am. I'm over here because this looks like a strong tower. So you guys are coming over. Come on over. Come on, you're going to take the, right? Now, how do they take this? Now, what do they have to do with this strong tower? You tell me, what does the Scripture say there? Well, come on, come on now, I'm far away, so you've got to talk strong. Pull it down. Can you say, pull it down? Now, how are they going to pull this down? Yeah, see? Well, let me just tell you, traditionally, understand that when you're, t- when you're doing something like this, it, it's built traditionally out of limestone. There's two particular types of stone used a lot in the Middle East. One is volcanic, that's basalt, and the other is limestone. Limestone is a very wet stone. Matter of fact, it's so wet that that's how you tear it down. 
What you do is you set a fire to the bottom of it. It evaporates the water out of the tower and it crumbles to dust before them. Does that make sense? Now, here's the point. This is where the archers are. This is where the guys, where if you get too close, we dump hot oil on you, rocks, live cats, whatever it is that we think is going to be dangerous to you. So, the idea of this is this has to be, <coughs> you guys are the Navy SEALs. Because for you to take down the tower, you've got to be concerned because you know that you're going to be dodging arrows shooting at you or whatever. Does that make sense? But see, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But instead, rather, they are perfectly capable to tear down every stronghold. So let me ask you something. Is there anything in your life right now that you feel like you can't even get near it? It'll never come down. This addiction, this problem, this thing in your past, this way that you view yourself, this weakness. Is there anything you say, that's a stronghold that'll never come down? I'm here to let you know that the spiritual battle is going to take that down if you do it right. That's the point. Are you with me on that? So, step number one, what do they have to take down? Okay, what does it say? Step one, what do they have to take down? There's more than Jenny here. I hear that. The stronghold, right. Now, notice what it says for the second thing. What do they have to do with the second thing? At that point, notice it says then that they have to take down every high ideal or thought. Notice what it says here. As they're taking down that stronghold, it tells us, by the way, that the next thing is to cast down. They went from throwing down to casting down. Did you notice that? Now, casting down, what they're casting down now are arguments. The word for argument, by the way, and for what it's worth, it's just a word that means logic or reasoning. But then it says, and every high thing that exalts or literally is raised up against the knowledge of God. Here's the next thing. Is that once you get to the towers at the front of it, the next thing is going to be the wall. That wall has to come down. But you can't even get to the wall until you get past those strong towers. Does that make sense? Now, understand, my dad was a real kind of adventurous sort. He would kind of go and just explore. And if it said no trespassing, that usually meant you should check that out. So if you ever wonder where I got that kind of stuff from, you know. Well, anyways, and one of the things, he saw a movie back in the, like, 70s called Papillon. I don't know if any of you ever saw it, like, Steve McQueen and... You know, one of those things? Well, he saw it and he noticed, by the way, because we're originally from, well, we were born in Chicago, that, well, that was filmed at the old Stateville. And there's a new Stateville. And if you've ever watched things like the Blues Brothers or whatever, that was, that's kind of part of it. Well, he's like, well, I should go visit that. So he comes with his new wife and he pulled up to this place and this place and there's this fence. Well, this fence comes, that's attached to two guard towers before the big fence, you know, and, and he looks and he shakes it and he goes, and he turns back to his wife and he says, you know, if we just got a chain cutter, we can just cut right through this thing and get right in. And just at that moment, the most surprising thing happened to him. Whistles came from the guard towers. The thing he didn't actually stop to think about is that Stateville, the old Stateville, was still occupied. <laughs> he was actually going to try to cut through the gate to let... No, you get it. Anyways, the wall has to go down. But so, understand what the wall is. In the first case, it's the strong tower. That's the thing that keeps you at a distance. And by the way, for some of us, that could be laziness. For some of us, it's apathy. For some of us, it's indifference. But the idea is that, well, this is just who I am. And by the way, can I, and I'm just going to go right for the throat of it, contemporary counseling does that to you. 
A lot of it that says, you know what? We're really not here to make you better. We're here to label you and let you know for the rest of your life, you're this, so you have an excuse. God says, that's not what Scripture says. That's not the way I work. Now look at there are times, hey, look at you know, God can choose to heal some things. He can choose to be a strength to carry you through them. But you label something and you're just like, well, then that's just going to be a strong tower. It'll never come down. God's like, look at the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And they're not man's devices. They're God's devices. They're eternal devices. I'm not going to tear that thing down because you've got a wall to take down. But what's interesting is once you get past that, the wall, notice what it says here, is that it says that it casts down. Notice what it says. What is it casting down? Arguments. And every high thing or literally barrier that exalts itself or lifts itself against the what? Did you notice that what we're actually fighting here is a mindset? This isn't just what we're fighting is, you know, Satan's got the media, or oh, I bet it's the Illuminati, or whatever. Hey, this is a mindset we have to fight. And that needs to take down. So, first of all, you take that thing down, so set that thing, you know, relatively, set it on fire, you know, right? And that thing, now, here's the thing, once you take down the strong tower, you're probably aware of the fact it's never going to be there again. If somebody wanted to build another strong tower, they will not build it in the same place because that limestone gets into the ground and it makes the ground unstable. Does that make sense? So when God takes down a stronghold, He takes it down. And then they go, and then from there they have to go, and what's the next thing? They have to go and take down the wall. So you get over that. Oh yeah, there's a radiator. Be careful how you step over that. <laughs> That's a hot radiator. Now, what is that wall? What is that barrier that's raised up? What is it? Arguments and anything that exalts itself against what? Knowledge of God. How much of that can you hear from Christians? Well, I know this is what God says, but you really need to help him out. Isn't that exalting itself against the knowledge of God? You're like, but I know this is what God says. But they're like, no, yeah, 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 maybe, but... It's still exalting itself against the knowledge of God. And the reason I say that is that can come from anyone's mouth if they're not careful. I've learned counseling is, almost, is always going to be bad unless it's from God. Because there is no wisdom, nor counsel, nor knowledge against the knowledge of God. That's what Scripture tells me. Well, then here's, the, here's where the whole thing comes to the point. You ready? Because in the end of it all, remember what the thing is? We have to take something captive. This is the king. It's kind of, you know. This king has to be taken captive. And once this king, this king is taken captive, the whole battle's done. Does that make sense? Okay, Christians, Bible students, read your text. What is the king to be taken and taken captive according to these verses? What does it say? What is it? Yes, that's exactly it. It is your thoughts. Notice it says, in taking every thought captive. Do you see that? Now, how many people are willing to tell you that's the spiritual battle? The spiritual battle is the battle over your thought life. Notice, you took down strongholds that you say that'll never happen, and then you went and you took out, you went against arguments that were lifted against the knowledge of God. Where is that battle being fought? In your mind. And you're going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Hey, wouldn't it be awesome if every thought in my head was a right one? And your head was a right one? 
And you're going to take them captive. And you're going to say, you know, in the end of it all, we're sorting through this. And if they're in obedience to Christ, they're good. If not, they're going to be literally they're going to be sent off to destruction. Does that make sense? Guys, go ahead. Thank you for taking the city. You can be. Now, follow me as we close this up. And I've shared this before, but it, it bears repeating in regards to the context of this. I have, a, I have some friends in, in, in Hawaii, and they're, they're good, really, really good friends with my wife. She lived there for a year. And we were taken to the, well, I was taken to the Dole Plantation. That's uh, the, where they can pineapple. And the guy was real a sweetheart, you know, he said, bro, you know, all this kind of stuff that, you know, very, very Hawaiian. And he started telling me, he goes, you know, one of the highest paid people in the entire uh, industry, in the entire company, is that guy right there. And he just looked like a very ordinary guy. He wasn't wearing a suit or tie. He was actually overseeing the, um, the plant. And I was like, well, what's his job? And he's like the sorting manager. I'm like, what's the sorting manager? And he went to explain it to me. And the Lord spoke to me about this particular text. You see, he says that the people who pick the, the pineapples actually get paid by weight. So, Nathaniel, if you and I are out there and we're going to go pick and we're going to get paid by weight and you see kind of a sort of nasty pineapple, do you put it in the crate? Because it's still heavy. And that's the idea. So the pickers aren't going to be very discriminating about what goes into the carts. Does that make sense? So as long as it looks like a pineapple, they're going to put it in. And then all of those pineapples get dumped onto a conveyor belt. And there is one person, or a group, now there's a group because it's so big, but there's one person that, just, that looks at them. And what happens is there's two, this conveyor belt wise off. And one of those things goes to where it gets canned and the other one goes into a fire. And the idea is this guy, or it gets ground into to sugar, but it all depends on how bad it is. But he takes a look at it and they look at him and it's his job to look and go, that's a bad pineapple that goes in the bad that goes on the bad conveyor belt, that goes into the fire. Does that make sense? Now, he can't control necessarily the pineapples that come in. Now, he can to some degree. It all depends on who you hire. But to some degree, you're going to wind up with some bad pineapples, no matter who you're dealing with. Now, certainly, there are certain people, you know, if I hire them, I'm going to be doing this a lot. Can I say that that's the issue with your own thought life? That should be, a great honor should be given to your sorter, who should be the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's like, hey, you know, you ever, you ever get a thought and you're like, well, what in the heck, where did that thought come from? I must be crazy. And I'd say, maybe you're not because you recognized it was a bad pineapple. I would be more concerned if you were like, oh, that's a great idea. We should just go kick babies or something. And you're like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. If you can sort through them, there's something to be said. Does that make sense? Now, certainly, certain music or things you watch or people you hang out with, you might be inviting a lot of bad pineapples in. But even with good crowd, you could still get some bad pineapples, but you still always want to make sure the sorter's on duty. Hey, and the reason why Dole knows that is because if that guy does it poorly, the entire business goes down. You open up a can and it's a nasty, gross thing of, of pineapple. And that gets around, especially in a day like this, with the information age, and sooner or later, nobody buys Dole anymore. I mean, think about how Tesco had to get over things like horse meat, which is strange because if you're in Sicily, you could buy it on the market. Anyways, the, the whole point of it is, you just didn't know you were getting it. The point of it is, is that if what our goal is to take every thought captive, and he says in the end of it all, there's going to be two sides to it. There's going to be that which is going to be then rewarded and honored, which is obedient to Christ. That's the good stuff. And the rest of it goes to the fire. 
Because that's what is, when, it, when the spiritual battle is won right, that thing's working well. Now, notice in that there's nowhere where it says you need to go out and chop down some demons or in some places you get a beanie baby, of all things, like a Satan, like we all know what he looks like, right, from the Renaissance, and everyone took turns doing a conga line and stomping on him, like that really changed anything. Might I say, you really want to see the devil lose? He says, me first, and then he says, you should join me in this me first campaign. And you're like, hmm, Christ first, Christ first. And I go, ooh, that's a bad pineapple. And what if tonight, here in this room, we started that campaign, the Christ First campaign? Do you realize how unpopular that is even among the church? The idea of picking up our cross and following him? How crazy of a thought is that amongst the church? But isn't that what Jesus did with us? Didn't he put us first? To empty himself of all of his glory? And only chose, by the way, only took what the Father gave him. At any moment, he could take back all the power of the universe, but instead he submitted it to the Father and let the Father be his Lord. Think about it. To show us what that looks like. So that we could say, not my will, but yours be done and see how that works. And in all of that, surrendering all of that glory so that he could die the death of the worst of criminals. So that all of our debt could be paid on the cross so that he could rise again and give us brand new life. Can you imagine? And we say, yes, Jesus, be my Savior. And he says, well, it comes, it's a package deal. It's Lord and Savior. Because nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, well, because you haven't made me your Savior. But he does say, because you haven't made me your Lord. So be careful. But in all of that now, if you're going to be my Lord, then I need you to put in the right sorter. He says, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit inside of you. And then he's going to use my word. And from that point on, we're going to start sorting through this. And we're going to win this battle from this point on. I want you to be victorious. I want to be completely victorious. And here's the crazy part. We're supposed to be. It says, greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. Some of us are familiar with that. Notice it doesn't say, greater are you with him. He's always the greater one. So back to the alley metaphor. You know, hand it to your bodyguard and get out of the ring. Say, I'm going to trust the Lord with this and do what he says. And when someone says, yeah, but out of pride, don't you deserve, aren't you entitled to? I'm going to go, that's a bad pineapple. I'm going to turn and look at the Lord and go, Good or bad? Pitch it to the fire, boy. Yes, sir. And as we pray, what if we walked out of here with that victory tonight? We go, oh, you need to go take on demons. You know what? He is exalted above every principality, power, might, and dominion. And it tells us that Jesus was manifest, according to, to John, to First John and to Hebrews, that he might destroy the works of the enemy to render him completely incompetent, impotent. Why would I want to fight a battle he's already won? Last thing in this. Let's say that in Deborah's case, Deborah is to marry Hugo. And there's been somebody that just thinks that all Italians should die. 
And Hugo, though not Italian, but roughly so, even though he's French, he's Fritalian now because of how much Italian is to speak to Deborah. He decides to take on the guy and he takes him down. And the guy now is permanently, he's been rendered permanently incompetent. And there's no way he'll ever be a threat again. He's been put in jail, life sentence, but like a real life sentence where like he's actually in there for, I don't know, like his life and, and in all of that, unless you're like a fruit fly. But, um, you know, and, and then Deborah says, okay, well, the guy's in jail. He's being punished and all of that. And Deborah says, you know what? Hugo, though you took him on, I'm going to go to that jail right now and give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to get up there. Come on, you want some of this? And you can see Hugo going, what are you, do- what are you doing, Deborah? What are you doing? He's already been defeated. Why do you want to give him any time at all? And crawl into the arms of the one who is above all principality, power, and might, dominion, and anything that's named, and sit in him, rest in him, and learn how good it is to be in him. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for this. <clears throat> thank you for Daniel and Nathaniel taking down the stronghold, but still leaving the church intact. Thank you, Lord, that this battle isn't one we can fight with worldly things. And we want to. And somehow in it, we feel like if we could just, even things that we think are are Christian enough, but they're still in essence a physical strategy. Like we're fasting for the purpose of winning a battle in the fasting versus fasting to surrender to you to actually get out of your way. Or praying because we think the power is in the prayer instead of a prayer of surrender to the one who where the power really is. And I pray tonight, right now, for people who are in a real serious battle in their thought life. A serious battle where they feel so defeated. And we sing songs of victory and they feel alienated from that. But tonight, Lord, I pray that that would change, that a revolution would start in this room of people that really are willing to make you first. And we want to confess to you, Lord, sometimes we have given audience foolishly to the enemy who is still trying to convince us that we should be first in our own life, as if somehow this life is ours. But you told us that if we seek to save it, we'll lose it. But we let it go to you where it belongs. And in that, We want to thank you that you want us at all. And as you died on that cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins, rose again. Thank you that it's never something we'll earn. It's by your grace. And by that, we now say thank you. We confess you, Jesus, is more than our Savior in contemporary shallow Christianity that's all about you saving but not about you lording doesn't work with scripture and we ask you to be the lord of our lives and with that lord as you tell us from the moment we've believed in you you've placed within us your holy spirit according to ephesians 1 oh lord may he be the sorter and lord get us away from bad pineapple farms from places lord where we know that we're going to spend all of our time at best spend all of our time sorting through it versus being in places where really that's not going to be the case as much, where the, the percentage, the per capita of bad things is so much less. 
And I pray, Lord, for those right now that when they think of what a strong tower is, that things come to mind. Addictions and weaknesses and things in their past or even things right now. But Lord, show us, Lord, these are things in very, very faulty thinking and very, very defeated mindsets that keep us away, Lord, from even trying to step forward to gain new ground. And I know part of that, Lord, is this desire to be wanted, so we're afraid to share you with others, which is the most offensive, because we're afraid they may not like us or they might reject us. But Lord, may we find our complete value in you and our contentedness in you so that we would be willing to start taking ground like you called us to. And with that, Lord, I pray that you would even tonight take the strong towers down. And with that, Lord, then as the enemy seeks to raise up arguments, Lord, and there's certainly ones in the scientific community, there's certainly ones, Lord, in the political community, there's certainly ones, Lord, in anything that appears to be intellectual that even has crept its way very much into the church. that is an offense to the knowledge of who you really are. Take those walls down. Take those walls down and take them down hard. That in the end, Lord, as you lead us on this, this brigade, this campaign, we recognize in the end the whole goal is to take every thought captive to the obedience of You. So every rebellious mindset, every self-reliant paradigm tonight, send them to the fire and give us hearts that are genuinely obedient. Lord, destroy all apathy and indifference Lord, destroy all emotional ambiguity and give us a fire inside for You. Jesus, we recognize You demonstrated that by coming to, the, coming to this earth and dying on the cross for our sins is our sacrifice and then rising again and offering us new life. So, as Your death on the cross paid it all, we confess You as our Savior. And as Your resurrection shows You are Lord of all, be our Lord. We confess You as both and ask You to lead us now. Jesus, in Your name. Amen.